Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I am the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Pastor Rod Heppel shares the next message in our series, Exploring the Life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Enjoy! This one who is the provider of the bread is sufficient to provide generously for the 12 tribes, but also for the world. Okay, so there's some imagery stuff going on there. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Now Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So let's start with the Passover was near part, because once we understand the significance of Passover and how it plays into these visible signs of Jesus, it starts to make sense for us. The Passover festival was... um, Uh, For the Jewish people, the most significant festival that they celebrated, and they had an anticipation tied to it. Uh, They believed that God would send this prophet like Moses, which was Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses said, God will one day raise up for you a prophet like myself. Listen to him. He will teach you. Listen to what he has to say. And they caught that part, because they're starting to wonder, could this be the one? It's Passover. He's doing this bread miracle. Is he the, the prophet? In their minds, what they were anticipating was someone during the festival who would do, show the power of God, that they would then go, that's the one, and then they had an expectation. Before we get to the expectation, when they came, I'm missing a slide. Sorry. The slide simply says this, that Passover was a time to remember and renew. So when they had their Jewish Passover feast, they were looking back and remembering the power of God. He saved us out of Egypt. And they remember how he did that, through the suffering and everything like that, right? Through the lamb that had to be killed and the blood that had to be applied, all that imagery. But they were also looking ahead. It was renewing within them the hope, the fact that God would one day actually bring this prophet. And what would this prophet do but rescue them just as God had rescued them once before? That's why after the feeding of the 5,000, they're saying to themselves, could this be the one? And what? Let's make him our king. But Jesus knows that they have the wrong king in mind. This isn't the plan of God as to how salvation would work just for this particular nation. It would be salvation for all nations. Jesus isn't going to fit their little political idea of who they think their Messiah is going to be. And so he heads off and goes into the hills. The problem was one of scope. Remember the forest for the trees? They couldn't see the forest, the salvation of the world, for the trees, we have our Messiah, we want to set him up so that he will free us from the Roman rule. That was the idea. And so they had the wrong picture in mind. And Jesus is like, no, you're missing the whole point as to why I've come. Now the second visible sign is that Jesus walks on water. And we're about to read that. And it's really interesting to note that these two The multiplication of the bread and the walking on water are the only two miracles of Jesus in all four Gospels. And they always go together. They're never separated. So if you have that in your mindset of these two always going together and they're never separated and it's at Passover time, here's some of the pieces. Bread and Passover would remind them of Exodus 12 and Exodus 16 and numerous other passages. But the essence of those passages is that God sent manna. God sent bread, and that God would send another prophet who would do miracles like that, which would be a sign that this would be the one. But then he also did something else. He parted the Red Sea so that they could walk through the Red Sea and get to the other side, right? He brings them safely through the Red Sea. 
And so what we have here in this walking on water is this idea that Jesus crosses from one side to the other side of the sea. And that's what I want to read now. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. This is the 12 disciples. Where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. But now it was dark. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat. Walking on the water, they were terrified. They were frightened, according to the NIV. But I'm sure yours in the ESV says terrified. Understandably so, right? Like, what are we seeing here? But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that, the only, that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone on, gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So here's the long and short of this. Um, they saw Jesus go into the hills to pray. They saw the disciples get into a boat and leave. They know that there's only one boat that was there. How did you get from here to there? Now, the disciples know, of course, because they saw him walking on the water. But the only conclusion that they can have is he walked across. Ta-da! Crossing over water, multiplying bread. It's the time of Passover. What's going on in their mind? Here's what's going on. It's a bunch of... Uh, folks, bear with me one second. I don't know what I did, but I got my slides way out of order. And I'm just going to see if I even have it here. No, I don't. So now you've seen every slide that I have coming here. <laughs> it's like magic. It's just disappeared. <laughs> Not one, but two. <laughs> and I thank you for your graciousness. Okay. Well, I'll just explain it to you. There were signs. In verse 2, it says that they saw the signs that he had performed. This is prior to the breaking of the bread. Verse 14, the people saw the sign, which was the breaking of the bread. Verse 26, Jesus says, you saw the signs that I performed. And then in verse 30, they say, what sign will you give us? So there's a lot of signs going on here. And here's what the whole point is. The sign would validate the messenger and the message. So if you catch the imagery of the multiplying of the bread, if you catch the imagery of he's walking on water, if you get the fact that this is Passover and they have high expectations that God is going to fulfill his promise and bring the prophet, all of this is coming together that Jesus is timing this perfectly to say, I'm the one. I am the one. I'm just not the one that you have in mind because you have a localized king and I'm going to be the king of the world. If we continue to read this dialogue, we kind of might get a little bit um, confused as to why they just simply asked Jesus a simple question, Rabbi, how did you get here? And he seems to go off in a different direction. Um, I think this is what we have to take at face value. Jesus knows their intentions of their heart when it says that they went across the lake searching for Jesus. They're going with the wrong intention. And he's going to tell them that. He's going to expose the motive of their heart. And the further you go into this dialogue, which is very long, you will see that Jesus just continues to reveal that they have a false motive. There's a shallowness there. They want the bread. They just don't want the bread of life. Do that miracle again. They also want a Messiah, but it's our Messiah. Please, come, rescue us from the Romans. They don't want a Messiah that's going to save their enemies. 
They just want a Messiah that's going to save them. So Jesus is exposing their false motives. He answers them when they come across and ask him, Rabbi, how did you get here? He doesn't answer their question. He says, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You like that. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God, the Father, has placed a seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Are you ready? To believe in the one he has sent. See, Jesus knows that their, 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 their hearts are misguided. And he's going to give them the goods really straight. He's just going to cut to the point right here in verse 29 and say, this is what you need to do. I know that you're really kind of preoccupied with all these other things, but that's not it. This is it. It's a direct answer. You know what? I've wondered that question many times myself. I'm going to risk it and see if it's there. It is. What is the work of God? I mean, we ask that, right? God, what do you want of me? What, what is required? I feel like I'm not good enough. And he says, yes. That's right. You're not. Here's the work. It's already done for you. And it's done in Jesus Christ. Believe in the one that I've sent. That's the answer. But we struggle with it, right? It's, it's hard to accept this key verse in Scripture that God so loves each of us that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We wrestle with it. I've got to do something. I've got to clean my life up to make me acceptable to God. And it doesn't work that way with God. It's about God's grace and his mercy that is demonstrated towards us. And we actually just have to trust him. And then he does his work in us. The language of this passage where he's trying to help them understand, because I'm not going to read the whole thing, okay? I'm reading a lot today, but not all of it. Uh, the language of the passage is he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then verse 40, the Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, Tim brought that up two weeks ago with Nicodemus, whoever looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has life. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. So this is the language that Jesus is using and their response to it is this. At this point, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Don't miss the fact that they grumbled, by the way. This is also intentional. If you go to Exodus chapter 16, you will read about the nation of Israel grumbling against Moses, but really grumbling against God. And why? Well, you brought us out here to this desert to die kind of a thing, right? And so God does what? He sends manna. He sends manna from the sky down out of heaven. And they, manna is an English word that we take from a Hebrew word, manu, which means, what is it? What is it? Kind of what we were asking on Friday. I showed up here and I was getting all wet. I'm like, what is it? It rained. After three and a half months, we finally got rain. What is it? And they're getting this bread, but after a while, guess what? They get sick of the bread and they grumble and complain. So don't miss that key word, grumbling. They grumble about the one who says he's the bread of life, just like the nation of Israel grumbled against God and trusting him for his every provision. Let's be careful about grumbling. It's the first step away from trusting God. Jesus did something, but he didn't do what they wanted. That bread in the Old Testament of our ancestors came from heaven, came out of the sky. You took bread that was made of barley right here. 
You use bread that was here, not bread that was there. It's not good enough, the sign that he has given. That's why they asked for another one. Jesus says, you need to understand something. I am the bread that has come down out of heaven. I'm the true bread of life. Your ancestors ate that other bread, but they died. I'm offering you something way greater. This is the true bread that if you eat of me, you will live. They're not getting it. I'm offering you something better. Bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Not even there. Thank you for rolling with me as I try to roll with myself. I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven. Eat this bread. That's what it means to believe in him. Their response is, but we know your parents. Um, you're the carpenter's son. You came from Nazareth. How can you say you came down from heaven? And Jesus says, well, you know what? Unless the Father opens your eyes, you're not going to believe. You're not going to see me for who I truly am. I'm sure that's going to sit really well with them, right? As we can see here. Jesus goes into this explanation about the Father, and the Father's going to teach. You know, this is tying in again with Moses saying, listen to that prophet. He's going to teach you. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate that manna in the wilderness and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Stop there for a moment. Do you remember Garden of Eden? Jesus gives a warning. Eat of that and you will surely die. Jesus says, eat of me and you shall not die. There's something here that, you know, in Christ, it's reversed. In Christ, we have eternal life. And that's what he's trying to share with them. And then he says, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He's got the cross in mind there. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus is taking his metaphor to a whole new level. And it's interesting to me that as a believer in Christ, I look at it and I go, man, he makes sense. I, I follow Jesus' logic here. I see what he's trying to say. But for a person who's blinded, it seems like the more that Jesus furthers his illustration, his metaphor, the further they get from understanding the truth of it. The deeper Jesus goes into his metaphor, the more offensive he becomes. Now, to be, to be really clear here, okay, he's not talking about cannibalism. That's where they're starting to stumble. Like, how can we eat his flesh? He's not talking about that. That was something that was detestable in the eyes of God. It was never practiced. It was never... Um, you know, given as an instruction by the nation of Israel to do that ever. What Jesus is doing is taking his metaphor to the next level, to the full extent that he can. Every metaphor has its limitation, but this one still has a little more life in it, and so he takes it further. Which is this, if you're going to be truly saved from your sins, you can't just nibble on the crust. You have to eat the whole loaf. You follow? That's what they wanted. They just wanted their version and the level to the degree that they understood what this meant. Give us manna from heaven. No, you just want to nibble on the crust. I'm the bread of life. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You can't just nibble on salvation. Salvation will not be done by their way. Salvation will be done God's way. We cannot add to our salvation. They could not add to what Jesus was offering. All they could do was believe and receive. The next verses, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. We've heard that before, right? Remain in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever eats on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Well, that's the final straw for them. Hey, they, that's it. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? That would be the crowds. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Remember the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and he became flesh and dwelt among us. What if I were to ascend to where I was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some amongst you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Not of the twelve, but of the broader group. Does this offend you? Yeah. Lord, they seem to be offended. Why does Jesus choose to talk like this? Why not just, okay, fine, you're not getting it, I'll dial it back. But he doesn't. It's almost like he uses inflammatory language. You want to know why he's so shocking? You want to know why he takes his metaphor to the next level? Not just good enough to say, I am the bread of life, but to say, you must eat my flesh. Not just good enough to say, you must eat my flesh, but to say, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's because it's true. And if you don't get this, you don't get salvation. He is the bread of life. There is no other way of salvation. It's like he's saying to them, stop fooling yourselves to think that there's going to be something else or someone else or some other way. It's not. I am here. I am the bread of life. That's offensive to you? How offensive will it be once you see your Messiah, your King, raised on a cross, dying? Will you be offended then? Oh, yes. Will you stumble then? Oh, yes. Well, you better stumble over my words now because when you see that happen, you will really stumble. So Jesus is saying to them, it's me and it's all me and there is no other way and you're playing a little game here and there's no games to be played with God when it's God's way and his way of salvation is in Jesus Christ. It's real flesh and it's real blood because my body will be broken, it will be beaten, it will be hung on a cross, it will hang there. The blood that was mine that gave me life will be shed and I will die. Yeah. Yeah. You want salvation? I am the bread of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. You don't just nibble on the crust. It's all of me. And you must have me. Keith Green used to do an introduction to a song that he used to sing. And of course, he died in like 1980, so this is very old, or 81. Um, but at the beginning of this introduction to his song, he, he said, you know, people criticize us as Christians. They say, you're so weak, you're so weak-minded, you need a crutch. Christianity is just a crutch. And he would say, Christianity's not a crutch. It's a stretcher. We don't hobble into heaven like we just need a little crutch. We're okay. We just got a little limp here, you know. 
Uh-uh, we're flat out, we're on a stretcher, and if people don't carry us, Jesus, we don't get in. Jesus is saying, I'm the true bread of life. You have to put your whole weight on me completely. You don't add anything to this equation. You don't get to determine how salvation comes for you. God is determinate. I'm the bread of life. I've come into the world, and I've come into the world to give my life for you. I think if we can grasp verses 35 and... um, I'll tell you what happened, folks. Um, I took my PowerPoint from last week, and I put my new PowerPoints in this week. Um, Some of those are my PowerPoints from last week. So I just apologize for this really big error that I have made. It's not the person in the booth at the back. It's me. (laughs) I claim this one. John 35. If you can grasp two verses, you'll know what Jesus is getting at. Verse number one. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever eats, will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me, drinks, will never be thirsty. Do you see that? Comes to me, believes in me, eats my flesh, drinks my blood, will never go hungry, will never be thirsty. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and of life. That's what he's trying to say. It's spiritual life, and it comes by the Spirit, and it comes by you coming to me and believing and trusting. But for some, they're very blinded, and the words were hard, and they did walk away. And Jesus turns to his disciples. Are you going to walk away, he says to the 12? So all the larger crowds, they're, they're dispersing. They're like, oh, we can't stand this. We're out of here. We can't make sense of it. Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Can I ask you a question? Do you think Peter understood everything that Jesus just said? Not a chance. (laughs) Not a chance. It wouldn't be until after the resurrection of Christ that he starts to put together what this really looks like, right? But in that moment, you know what he knows? He knows that you're still the one who gives the words of eternal life. Who can we turn to? And this is what I want to say to us. I've been here, I've been a Christian for like 40, I don't know, I can't do the math, a long time, really long time, 48 years. How many times in my life have I said, Lord, I don't understand. Lord, that's a hard teaching. Lord, I don't know how this works. And it's kind of like in the back of my head, there's this little voice that says, well, to whom will you turn? No, 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 no. I'm not turning to to anyone, Lord. I trust you. I know that you are the one who is the son of God who's come to the world to save me from my sins and you alone have the words of eternal life, just like Peter. But I don't get it all. I don't necessarily understand it all. But I trust you with it. And I think that every person has to come to the place of saying, what will you do with Jesus? He is offering something. It's the bread of life. Right from the get-go, people were resistant. Are you resistant? Are you saying, I'm not sure that I can trust this Jesus? Well, then in whom do you trust? Well, I don't know that I trust anyone. I just don't think I'll make a decision on trusting in anyone. Well, that is a decision. To do nothing is to do something. Because one day we all die One day we all stand before God and one day we all give our answer. What will yours be? We stand before God and we say, man, I took your offer. I trusted in Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And you know, in a few weeks we're having a baptism Sunday. We're calling it I Declare because that's what baptism is. It declares your faith in Jesus Christ. It declares that you are his follower. You might not have all the answers. That's fine. None of us do. But it's your one answer that you know you have. He died for me. He rose to give me life. He is my Lord. 
And if you want to be baptized on November 20th, and I keep pointing over here because that's our baptismal right there. We're going to fill it, Lord willing. Uh, speak to us on staff because we would love to baptize you on November 20th. Let's pray. Father, this story is, is um, unsettling on certain fronts. But in other ways, it helps us truly understand that we don't trust in anyone or anything else. We only trust in you and what you've done. Thank you so much for Jesus. He wasn't just coming to talk about some idea. He gave his very life. He went to the cross. He died for us. And in return, he asked us to believe in him. And we don't just nibble on the crust. We take all of him. So help us to live out our faith in Christ and be obedient to you. Help us to share that with others. I would pray for that Friday night event of this Women's Connection opportunity is just one avenue in which people can maybe come to hear the good news of Jesus and why you came to save each and every one of us. Savior of the world, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we would just trust that you would go with God's peace and his blessing in your life today. And let's go shine our witness to the world around us. Our vision is to be centered in Christ and visible in community and transforming our world. So let's go be a part of God's mission in our world. God bless you. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship sermon podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.